we do praise you. We praise your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your Spirit's work in us. Because of Christ, because of your Word, Lord, we can come to you with hearts of worship, true hearts of worship. And though all of us have sin, we can come confessing that sin, knowing that you're faithful and just to forgive us of these things, so that we can stand before you with a right heart, with a right attitude, knowing that because of Christ our sins have been forgiven. Lord, this is true for those of us who are believers. For those who are not genuinely saved, we pray today they would believe in Christ, they would believe in His resurrection, that anticipate the great thing that Jesus accomplished, and that was power over sin and death and His own resurrection, believing that they too will one day be like Christ, and they will see Him. Lord, bless us as we study Your Word now. We pray, Lord, as we come into this week and the next week celebrating the resurrection of Christ, Lord, we will believe the truth and we will filter out all the lies, all the hateful, spiteful, arrogant lies that have crept into this world, and not just into this world, but into the church. Help us reject these things, believe the truth, love your Son, and be with you in glory. It's for His name's sake we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as always, it's great to be with you today. Grateful for this privilege to read the Word of God, to sing it, to study it, and apply these truths to our heart. Please open your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33, and here we find another challenge, another trap that is being set by the religious leaders, the leaders of Jesus' day. This is from another group, among the several groups of leaders. This was the group of Sadducees. The Sadducees, if you can remember some weeks ago, I, I lined out for you all the different leader groups, or at least the main leadership groups in Israel. The Sadducees, if you remember, they were a theopolitical party. They were political leaders. They had a lot of power, men of influence, men of great position. But like the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Zealots, they were unified by their theological persuasion. They held a certain world view. And though they were far fewer than, say, the Pharisees, they likely had much more power than any other theopolitical group for a couple of reasons. One, they were in charge of the temple, many of them being Levites. They were in charge of the maintenance of the temple. And two, they were mostly made up of wealthy, very politically connected people in society. And so you can sort of deduce here why they would have been so influential and why they were so powerful. Again, many of them Levites, they were legally to care for the temple, and they, they had begun to fund the temple. You see this in just about any organization, not the least of which is churches, local churches. Wealthy men come in, they begin to fund, and, and, and maybe their character doesn't line up with what they're supposed to be, but they're giving all the money, they're funding the enterprise, and so people just give them power. And that's what happened with the Sadducees. These, these men were wealthy. They had lots of power. They had funded the temple's buildings, expansion, and upkeep. And because in Jerusalem and because of, in Israel, the, the social center and the religious center was there at the temple, these men had fantastic power. They were the leading wealthy connected group in Jewish society. Theologically, they would be what we would call liberal. 
progressive. Why? Well, they are similar to the liberals of our own day. They rejected most of the Bible, all but the first five books. And even in those, they rejected ideas of God's sovereignty. They preached free will, that God sort of bows to what man does, the actions and decisions of man. They rejected the miraculous. They rejected angels and demons. Particularly, they rejected the miraculous as it pertained to the afterlife. They believed in no afterlife, no resurrection of people either for good or for bad, for eternal uh, uh, glory or eternal punishment. They did not believe that after we lived there was anything. As you might expect, this made for sharp disagreements among the leaders of Israel, especially with the Pharisees. The Pharisees prided themselves of being conservatives, of being fundamentalists. They had all the rules, all the laws, and uh, they prided themselves in knowing and believing all the Bible. Of course, Jesus brought out their hypocrisy. They didn't actually know and believe the Bible. But they prided themselves in this, and of course, they would have affirmed the resurrection where the Sadducees would have denied resurrection or an afterlife, to use their uh, uh, thinking there. And so they had many disagreements with various people about various issues, particularly as it pertained to the afterlife, or to use their word here, resurrection. And that is the subject matter with which the Sadducees wanted to trap Jesus. There was one thing they agreed on with the Pharisees, and that is they hate Jesus. So much like the Pharisees, they looked for opportunities that they could trap Jesus. They could get him to say something that would indict himself or make him look foolish. So they'd have a reason to accuse him or perhaps even arrest him, put him on trial, and kill him. But just as Jesus did with everyone that day, he sent them away with their tail between their legs, gave his followers, at the same time, gave his followers great instruction, great truth that we can glean from this text. So let's read this story together. Matthew 22, beginning in 23. Follow along as I read aloud. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring, and left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Verse 29, but Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what is said to, to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of God. It is my conviction that every believer should, at some point, read the Puritan John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. It is a story of a man who is traveling from his city, the city of destruction, to the heavenly city or the, the celestial city to be with God. The story is an analogy of the journey of every believer. It takes situations that 
allegorize what was happening, what happens in the Christian life. The man's name is at first, to give an example, the man's name is at first Pilgrim. He has no intention of being Godward, but he is drawn away from the city of destruction to the cross. And there at the cross, he has faith in Christ. His burden of sin is taken away. It's relinquished, and he is renamed Christian. And then the story, story is all about how Christian will get to heaven, how he will make it to the heavenly city. Along the way, Bunyan gives us many different vignettes, different little stories of things that would parallel the Christian life and, and ways, scriptural ways, that we should think about these things and interpret these things. This book is so helpful and centers us on the truths and applications of Scripture that Charles Spurgeon said, besides the Bible, this was his favorite book. He said he read it more than a hundred times. But you ought to read this book. Well, one of the vignettes, more moving vignettes in The Pilgrim's Progress, is when Christian and his friend did something stupid, and that was to cut through a meadow on the land of Doubting Castle where a giant by the name of Despair lived. Of course, they're captured. They are thrown into the dungeon. And every day they are beaten down by despair mercilessly. But despair lets them out. It is only in chains in order that they may see all the bones and remnants of those who were killed by despair. Eventually, despair put in their cell tools of suicide. A knife, a bottle, possibly representing poison or perhaps drinking yourself to death, and a rope. Christian at this point is in the dungeon of despair. He's lost all hope. He began to reason with his friend, why not just take our lives? I mean, is it, we're never going to get out of this place. It's miserable. We're getting beaten every day. Why not just end it all? Why not just go be with God? He's in the depths of depression. He's in the depths of despair day after day. We can't go on like this. And I, I think we can identify with it, especially those of you who have depression. That dark cloud rolls in. Even if it's not clinical depression, even if it's not something maybe that anybody's made any kind of diagnosis, but you feel that darkness roll in, that, that cloud, that shadow, that despair that, that hangs over you, and you feel like there's, there's just no reason to, to live anymore. It just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem worth it to get up every day and go through this. It seems like there's no way out. Now, one night, Christian and his friend decide to begin praying, to put all their energy in crying out to God for help and rescue from despair. And it is while they prayed that Christian remembered that he had been given a key, a key that he kept around his neck near his heart, and upon that key is written the promises of God. Christian said, what a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may be walking out in freedom. I have a key in my bosom called promise that I will, I am persuaded, open up any lock in Doubting Castle. So they try it. Sure enough, it frees them. They flee the castle. They run back to the king's highway and travel again toward the heavenly city. What a wonderful biblical lesson, isn't it? If you're a believer, no matter how hard things are, no matter how much, how deep you have gone into depression, 
you have something. You have a key. And that key is on your bosom. It's at your heart. The promises of God. Promises like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Promises like, God's ears are open to the cry of the righteous. Promise, promises like, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And promises about your eternity, your afterlife. We read some of those already today that like Jesus, who was first, we too will be resurrected, given an indestructible body of glory and live forever with God. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he shall live. John eleven twenty five. Philippians 3.21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables to subject all things to Himself. Isn't that great? These are the promises that we as Christians carry on a key around our neck to help us free us from the prison of despair and depression. These particular promises, these specific ones, are anchored in the resurrection of Christ. Jesus' resurrection is the proof and the foretaste of our own eternity. There is a resurrection for those who follow Christ. Take away the doctrine of resurrection, you take away all hope. Take away the resurrection, you take away the very proof that Christ has power over sin and death, and that God accepted His sacrifice and saves those eternally who believe in Christ. This is why Paul said, if you profess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So Jesus preached His resurrection. He promised His resurrection and the follow-through. He promised our own afterlife, our own resurrection, an eternity, a positive resurrection, an eternity with God forever in glory. The Sadducees rejected the whole idea as silly, something for weak people. Now, here they are. They think they've come up with some sort of trap to befuddle Jesus, to give him pause about his belief and his teaching of the resurrection. They think they can stump him. They think they can make a fool of him. They come up with what they think is a great argument against the resurrection and afterlife and make a fool of Jesus, but it is Jesus who makes a fool of them. All right, what can we learn from this story? Two things, maybe you want to write these down. Number one, beware of the leaven of liberalism. Beware of the leaven of liberalism. You remember back when Jesus said in Matthew 16, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This was Jesus warning His disciples not to toy around, not to entertain Consider the damnable beliefs and behaviors of these leaders of Israel. You notice Matthew, he has the fullest idea, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, leaven is, is something that, that spreads, takes over, it dominates, it affects everything, it changes the actual substance, even the molecular setup of whatever it comes to be a part of. So the warning is that the thinking, the attitudes, the belief systems of the Sadducees can take root and change everything. And it can spread. It can spread to your family. It can spread to others around you as you believe falsely like them, as you do and act and believe and set up your worldview that is false. It will spread to others. It will infect and kill others. So Jesus says, beware. This will kill you. Don't toy with it. Don't mess around with it. Be wary. Look for it in order that you may flee it. 
Well, as I've said, the, Fer the excuse me, the Sadducees are most comparable to today's theological liberals. I'm not talking about liberal politics, though oftentimes they go hand in hand, but I'm talking about theological liberalism. Maybe that's not a phrase or a word that you've heard of or at least thought of very much. So let me explain about these men and what they believe. The Sadducees were wealthy, as I said. They were considered educated. They were considered uh, the leaders of Israel because they were wealthy and they were educated and they were, many of them were on the Sanhedrin. In fact, many of the Sanhedrin, though there were Pharisees on the Sanhedrin, many of the, the Sanhedrin, uh, because they were leading all of Israel, were Sadducees. They prided themselves in their rejection of the faith of the simple-minded of the people of Israel. What was their belief system? Well, first of all, they rejected the idea of a sovereign, all-powerful God. They did not believe that God was more powerful than nature. They rejected even that God would be sovereign over man's decisions. So they, like Pelagius, Later on, and Arminius, even after that, they believed in free will. And not just free will in the sense that man has to choose God, has a responsibility to, to pray, to evangelize, to have faith, to make a decision for Christ. Not just that kind of free will. This was unbounded free will. Free will that was not in any way controlled or, sovereign over, uh, or God had his sovereignty over it. God had to, in essence, in their minds react to all the stuff that happened in the world, whether it was nature or whether it was man's decision. God was just the sovereign, or the not sovereign, but the, the, the divine reactor. He just responded to everything and just had to sort of go along with whatever people were doing. So they, they rejected God's sovereignty. They, re, they believed in free will. They did not believe, third, they did not believe in the afterlife from dust to dust. They taught that nothing happens after death. You die and nothing happened. Nothing is going to happen long-term in this world. There is no apocalypse. There is no end of time. There is no arrival of the Messiah who sets things right. We just live and die. So with that, they rejected any idea of eternal reward, good or bad. They rejected the idea of resurrection. That's the vernacular that's used in our passage. And this is not just talking about Jesus' resurrection. It's talking about any kind of resurrection, any kind of afterlife, anything that would happen after someone dies. They rejected it. With this, they were leery about spirits. They were leery about angels. They were leery about miracles. They didn't believe in demons. Anything they could not understand or observe empirically, they rejected. All of these things to them was stupid, foolishness, that only the poor, uneducated masses were stupid enough to believe. To support this belief system, as I mentioned, they had to reject most of the Bible. The Bible then was simply the Old Testament in 39 scrolls, they rejected 34 of the 39 scrolls. They said only the first five, the, the Pentateuch, was divine. But even then, they had to skirt around when those first five books talked about miracles or angels or afterlife. They had to sort of come up with something else. They had to interpret it in a little bit different way. They had to jump their hoops and twist the plain meaning of the text to support their belief. Well, this makes them clearly 
the close siblings to today's theological liberals. So if you are to beware, if you are to avoid liberalism, to be careful of the leaven of liberalism, what is theological liberalism? Liberalism. The fact of the matter is, it's everywhere. You may not know it. You may not even, this may be the first time you've ever heard of it. You thought Christians were just Christians. It's all the same, right? Wrong. It's everywhere. And I'm not some sort of fear monger, but I'm always trying to spot some sort of liberal boogeyman. It's just historical fact. If you look into all the history, the history of Christianity, what you find is, especially when the 19th century came along, many people, many churches, many Christians, many denominations, many seminaries turned toward theological liberalism. It's affected every major denomination. It's affected every seminary. You see it in any popular depiction of Christianity. If you turn on the History Channel or Discovery Channel or anywhere else, what you find, the, the representation of Christianity is a liberal, almost always and exclusively, a liberal idea of Christianity. This is the single overwhelmingly dominant perspective that you hear today. Now, what is it? How can we take care and beware of it. Well, after the Enlightenment, people were very positive about humans. They were very positive about man's intellect, man's power, man's abilities, man's accomplishments. I mean, there was magnificent strides in, in science and discoveries and education. The standard of, of living skyrocketed after the Enlightenment, into the Industrial Revolution. These things went up and up and up. And so there was this idea, really, of man's sovereignty, man's abilities, man's capability to discern and discover the true nature of whatever, whether it's the body or the heavens, the universe, the earth. And you do this with man's ability to discern what is right and wrong, his unchanging practice of, of science and logic. It's all an outflow of man's abilities. So with that optimism came negative views of anything that they could not explain logically or scientifically any discussion of the supernatural, any discussion of the afterlife, any discussion of the spiritual, of the divine. This was all instantly cast aside as illogical and irrational codswallop. They only, only uneducated poor people believed in those things. Charles Darwin and many others were eventually very open about their disbelief and their doubt not initially, but eventually. He was actually forced, I don't know if you know this or not, but he was forced to go to Cambridge and study theology. He had zero interest in it. He had no desire to study theology. He admitted this. He believed that what they were studying there was illogical and unintelligible. When he married his wife, which incidentally was his first cousin, you didn't know that? He lied to her. People told him that she's really religious and she's going to be unhappy. She finds out that you despise all this. So he lied to her to tell her that he was religious when in fact he was not. Interestingly, his main reason for, for rejecting God was not because he engaged in logical discussion at Cambridge with the theologians. It's simply because he looked at the world, saw bad things, and said, I can't imagine a God would ever allow anything bad to happen. It was not logical. It wasn't thoughtful. He didn't engage Scripture. He didn't engage theologians. He just brushed it aside without much logical thought at all, all the while claiming to be logical and scientific. By the way, this is a hallmark tactic of 
atheism and agnosticism, isn't it? Don't actually engage. Don't talk to those stupid Christians. Just brush it aside. Don't let them in the universities. Don't let them have professors. Just, just kick it out. Just ignore it because we already know it's stupid. Now get rid of it. Uh, someone told me the other day that their child came in and said, Pastor John said the word stupid. I've been told not to say stupid. Sorry, children. He said stupid. I'm quoting somebody. It's not a good reason. Well, at this point, in the late 19th, early 20th century, there were some Christians who were very concerned as they saw Darwinism grow and the educated elite began to just brush aside Christianity, so they felt like what they needed to do is give Christianity a refresh. Christianity 2.0. We Christians need to relinquish our insistence on all these things that are sort of embarrassing and illogical like creation and the virgin birth and the resurrection and inerrancy and fallibility of Scripture and miracles and heaven and hell and the apocalypse and the return of Jesus. I mean, we just need to get rid of this stuff. All of these things are, are really unscientific and unbelievable to modern man. We should be embarrassed to hold these doctrines because, they said, if, if Christians go around insisting these things, these silly myths, Christianity will soon die. So they decided Christianity needs an update, a re refresher to account for all that man has done and all that we know now, all the amazing strides. Let's make something more amenable to modern, educated man. By doing so, they thought they would save Christianity. Different groups of liberals rose up. One popular liberal persuasion that you'll hear even today is what's called neo-orthodoxy. They said, we can explain all these perceived miracles in the Bible naturally. These things happened, but they happened naturally. And the ancient people, they were sort of silly and unscientific and foolish. They thought what was happening was a miracle. If we were there, we could have explained to them this is actually something natural. So the parting of the Red Sea, this was just some freak weather incident that froze waves on either side. Doesn't explain a lot of other things that happened that day. I actually heard that not too long ago, just a few months ago, I heard that on the History Channel. They're explaining that this is, this is what actually took place and why these ancient silly people thought it was miraculous. Jesus did not die and rise from the grave. No, He swooned. He passed out, took a long nap, stretched, and got up three days later. That's quite a nap. Another popular movement within liberalism, and this is one that I think is probably most applicable now, Another popular movement within liberalism is called the Social Gospel Movement. It began in the late 1800s. Believe it or not, it was a Baptist, Walter Rausenbusch, who pastored a large church in New York City, the second German Baptist church. He spearheaded the whole so Social Gospel Movement around 1900. He rejected the Atonement. That is to say, he rejected Jesus was a substitute for anything. He rejected the resurrection. He rejected any kind of individual resurrection, the afterlife, as silly and unnecessary. He said that kind of bloody religion is unacceptable to modern man. Instead, he said, we need to replace all of that with love. 
What did he mean? Well, it's a social gospel. Rousen Bush said, and other people said, the basic idea of true salvation is to free a person from social ills. It has nothing to do with sin and hell and death. That, that stuff is just silly, old-fashioned superstition of old-fashioned old people. Salvation is really just freeing someone from their social ills, their social problems. This movement emanated, it started with the writings of Karl Marx, who held that all humanity can be lumped into two groups, the haves and the have-nots, or you could say the oppressors and those being oppressed. Rosenbusch actually called this, his version of Christianity, Christian socialism. He railed against capitalism, which he felt was a source of most of human misery. According to the social gospel, salvation is not salvation from sin or salvation from God's judgment for your sin or God's wrath or some ridiculous idea of crucifixion, appeasing God's wrath or propitiation or any of that old-fashioned Bible stuff. It is all about, salvation is all about the oppressor surrendering his power and control and giving it to the oppressed. Does this sound familiar? Satan doesn't have anything new. He can't create anything. It's just one lie that he repeats over and over again. This is critical race theory, totally contrary to the gospel. It's not to deny that there's constant inequities in every society just because there's human and there's humans and there's sin and there's people who want power and there are racists and all of that exists. That doesn't mean the Bible and the gospel is wrong. It's essentially what the CRT says that based on Marx, based on the social gospel 100 years ago, we ought to take these ideas, these ideas of oppressors and oppressed and import this into Christianity and do this so that we can become relevant and we can speak to the issues of the day. And if we don't, we're going to die. Look how dead our church is. If we don't do that, we're going to die. They want to rescue Christianity from itself, attract the world. Let's give people something appealing and sophisticated, something relevant, not some story about some ancient Jew being killed. Give them something that will solve their problems. Well, this is one of the allures of liberalism, isn't it? This is how you can spot it and, and run away from it. There's this obsession with being loved by the world, being affirmed by the world, being perceived as relevant, this overarching, constant idea that churches and Christians need to appeal to the intellects and the likes and the dislikes and the current sensitivities of, of sophisticated man. If we don't, we die, we die, they tell us. There's a certain panic behind all of it. By the way, that's no different than the church growth movement. You know I can get them in there somewhere. It's no different than the church growth movement. You know, look to the desires of man, appeal to people. That's why we do have people like Rick Warren and other church growth experts who are now moving further and further and further away from Orthodox Christianity. They're aligning themselves more and more with the desires of humans. If your goal is to attract the world, if that's your prime directive, you start by whittling the gospel down to the most appealing essentials that are there. 
And you just abandon those things that people don't like. After a while, you begin to abandon the gospel altogether. The truth is, statistically speaking, liberal churches are actually the deadest of churches. Did you know that? Demographers tell us this. This is not just something that I came up with. This is actually, if you look at the studies, studies show that the liveliest, the most growing churches are conservative, Bible-believing churches. Sure, you can find exceptions, but usually those exceptions only last a short while. Walter Rausenbush, he went to his church, he went to this church, it began to explode and grow. He had all these new ideas and all these sophisticated people began to come to his church and flood in, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. He passed away, and that church didn't last even a generation. Eventually, it was sold to a nightclub owner, turned it into a club, put a giant sculpture of Satan right at the front middle of the church. It was one of the most sensual clubs all the way to the 70s and 80s. With many of you, I've observed something interesting over the last 24 months during this COVID era. It wasn't just COVID, there have been other challenges to the local churches. For one, it was what I call real COVID. There was a disease out there that threatened people who are vulnerable, people who had illnesses. There's no doubt about it. And the question is, how does a church deal with that? That's ravaging people. What do we do? We hear about choirs, small choirs of elderly people, several of them dying after getting together. You have to think about what you're supposed to do. So churches had to figure out what they're going to do with real COVID. There's also what I called fake COVID. This is what you hear heard on all the news channels on both sides. All the politicians, they, they peddled some sort of version of COVID, probably to gain points or gain money or gain power. Churches also had to deal with the outplay of the election, which, as we know, ended up with the storming of the Capitol. And churches had to thread a needle with the whole Black Lives Matter movement. How do we understand the plight of people who are mistreated, but at the same time, how do we reject these false ideas like critical race theory that pit humans against each other and try to solve racism by creating more racism? It's been interesting to watch how churches react to all of this. I, I sat, sat through several Zoom meetings uh, with other pastors. I sit in my office and in these Zoom meetings, I felt like you could divide the pastors into one of two groups. One group was made up of those of us who were concerned about truth, concerned about obedience, doing what the Scripture says, doing what's right in terms of their church, fundamentally and ultimately before their spiritual health. And then there were those pastors who seemed obsessed with how others would view their church. What was their church's image in society? They seemed obsessed with what the outside world would, would think about them, and, and it seems like their whole decision-making processes were, were designed around what will the outside world think of us. Some of these churches in this 24 months became so woke they died. They whittled down to so few people. 
They're just a fraction of what they used to be. But there never ceases to be this allure. Pastor and church caught up in the desire to appeal to the world, to be popular. Maybe it's under the banner of evangelism. But when you take away the gospel, it's not evangelism anymore. You're just building your own kingdom. Be popular, to be affirmed, this is a huge allure. Pastors and churches always a bit embarrassed of those basic Christian truths about creation, the miracle of God's Word, the, the people of Israel, the virgin birth, the perfect life of Christ, His miracles, His death, His resurrection, even embarrassed about eternal matters, what happens in the afterlife, what's coming next, the judgment of God. So they hide all those things they're embarrassed about, whittle the gospel down to they, the things they think they're acceptable, and smuggle them in with other false philosophies. I suppose that brings up another allure, another thing you need to be aware of, another temptation of liberalism is the idea that this is the intellectual way. Like the Mandalorian, this is the way. You've got to follow. This is what smart people are saying. You want to be smart, got to say what they say, got to do what they do. Look down at verse 24. The story that these, these Sadducees bring to Jesus. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up his offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, third, all the way down to the seventh. After them, all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife shall she be? For they all had her. I mean, the pride here is palpable. You can feel it. They're basically saying, you believe in the miracle of resurrection, to believe that you could rise again, to believe that there's some sort of afterlife, to believe that anyone after they die goes on to some eternal hereafter with a new body is so stupid, it's so juvenile, no smart person would ever believe it. I mean, we can come up with the, with the silliest of stories and it can prove you wrong. Remember the governor of... Minnesota, what he said about Christianity? It's a sham and a crutch for the weak-minded people. Jesse Ventura, now there's an intellect right there. Up there with Al Franken, such a solid citizen. You understand the allure of liberalism, though. It is, this is where the smart people are. This is what the smart people think. This is what smart people do, and you're dumb if you do anything else. And, and honestly, I, I've seen Christians fall into it. They get sucked into this. They think that if they affirm what Christians have affirmed for 2,000 years, then they're stupid. Then they won't be esteemed in academia. That's the allure of liberalism. They're thinking this is, way we can, this is a way we can make Christianity intellectual, appealing to smart people. The Sadducees had devised a version of Judaism that was, at least in their minds, the, the intellectual version of Judaism. The problem was it wasn't biblical at all. Jesus showed it to be folly. So let's answer this question. Why flee this? Why beware of this? Why did Jesus want his followers to beware of the leaven of the Sadducees? This is our application. Why reject liberalism? Number one, we're not trying to be popular. The church, Paul says, is to be the pillar of truth. Never in the Bible do you see the church wringing their hands, trying to become more relevant, to come up with some idea, some program, some event to get more people to like them. 
and more people to come. Never do we see them concerned with what the world will say about them, how the world will accept them. When, when Paul said he tried to persuade people, it had nothing to do with adopting their false philosophies and appealing to them. When he said he's all things to all people, you look at how he preached, how he wrote, how he was beaten over and over again, clearly this becoming all things to all people had nothing to do with being obsessed about what people thought about him. So first of all, reject that whole premise of liberalism that we must be liked by the world. Another reason we reject this is that we're not trying to live up to man's standards of intellectualism. Think about how even science has changed over the years. Someone sent me an article, it was in Time Magazine from the 1950s, and the article went on and on about how our globe, our world is cooling, and we need to start warming up the atmosphere. They suggested trying to melt the ice caps. These are scientists just half a century ago. We're not trying to live up to their standards of intellectualism. We're not trying to be liked by the popular intellects of the world. Don't get me wrong. Brilliant conservative scholars believe in Christ. They have provided devastating responses, just as Jesus did here. They have provided devastating responses to all the, the criticism that liberals have brought through the years, even theological liberal, liberals. It's not Christianity that's mindless. I say this all the time. I think following Jesus is the most rational, logical, smartest thing a person can do. All the accusations can be answered. All the traps that the liberals concoct can, can be thwarted. They can be overcome. But let me give you a hint. Even when you do, they don't care. They just move on to the next effort of trapping you. They're bent on disbelief. It doesn't matter if you give them a brilliant answer or not. Unless God is working on their hearts, they go on rejecting. Now, that brings me to another reason to reject liberalism. We believe in the power of the gospel. You could even say the power of God's Word. The climax of God's Word is the gospel. What did Jesus say to them in verse 29? You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Our hope is not in some clever relevant, intellectual, attractional ministry or presentation. Our hope is in Christ. It's in His expanding kingdom that He has the power to overcome even the darkest of unbelief. Our hope is not becoming revered among intellectuals. It's simply giving truth and trusting God. James said, God brought you forth by the word of truth, the power of the gospel. He awakened your heart. It's not our hope to reach people by becoming popular, by becoming respected. It doesn't mean we're rude or dumb or inhospitable. Those are outworkings of our love for people. But our hope is not in those attributes. Our hope is in Christ and His power in the gospel. Well, this brings us to the second point of our outline. Some of you are thinking, we're only halfway through. <laughs> we will discuss this in detail next week. It just so happens that 
this whole thing about the resurrection happens right when we're going to be celebrating the resurrection next week. While we avoid the leaven of liberalism at the same time, positively, we should hope in the reality of the resurrection. Hope in the reality of the resurrection. You notice Jesus takes them to the truth of the resurrection. He tells them from the very top the power and truth of God's Word. And there is wonderful hope. All these who follow Christ, all those who come after Jesus, beginning with the most ancient of saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they are among the living. And they live because He lives. And I'm looking forward to studying that wonderful truth next week, again, appropriately on Resurrection Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we will heed the words of Jesus here as we think back to Matthew 16 and then see the, the Sadducees at work here attacking Christ, attacking Christianity. We pray, Lord, that we would be wary of this leaven, be wary of the danger of theological or Christian liberalism when we would reject this. We would see its failure throughout the centuries over and over again, no matter how many times it's repackaged and sold again and again to Christians, we would see it for what it is and we would reject it, turn to Jesus, understand that every person's hope is not money, it's not better social circumstances, it's, it's nothing but Jesus Christ, the story of Him crucified and resurrected. I pray that we would be faithful to the Word of God, faithful to that truth. And I pray, as always, for those who don't know you, that they would believe in Jesus today. They would set aside all those doubts. And Lord, we pray that you would have moved in their hearts, even as this sermon was preached. We call them to the truth of Jesus Christ, Him crucified, Him resurrected, ascended to the Father. Give them the hope that if they believe in Christ, they too will be resurrected to glory and not death. Help them believe in Jesus and repent of their sins even now. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, stand with me. Now, as we go from here, may we be filled with the hope of a resurrected Christ who will come again gloriously. And we will live with Him eternally because He lives. Amen.